It's Thursday, the 20th of April. In this episode of Going Viral, Professor Paul Ben Binder discusses the booster confusion, the relative advantages of non-mRNA COVID vaccines, antivirals, with recent changes to prescribing criteria for Paxlovid and the anticipated new COVID wave. The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest on COVID-19, with leading voices from across Australia providing medical professionals with up-to-date information from reliable sources. Here's today's episode. My name's Paul Van Binder. I'm a professor in the School of Medicine at Griffith University, uh, and I want to talk to you about uh, what's been happening with COVID-19 disease over the last few weeks, uh, and also a bit of an update on uh, our upcoming flu season as well. And so first, I just want to show you my declarations. Uh, I've worked for a number of vaccine companies and been involved in uh, some national committees. Uh, Most importantly, uh, I haven't received funding and the views that I'm expressing are my own and not attributable to any of my affiliations. So this is the content tonight, uh, what's happening with the epi, what's happening with vaccines, who should get a boost and when, Uh, some recent changes to the access to antivirals, and then to wrap up something about influenza itself. And so COVID-19 epidemiology, um, this is the global situation which continues to progress uh, at a moderate pace. Um, 760 million cases of COVID that are documented, obviously a lot more than that, uh, and 7 million deaths uh, so far. We've given out about 13.5 billion doses of vaccines. So we know a lot about uh, these vaccines, the effectiveness, the safety and so on. The situation in Australia is that we've started to see a little bit of an increase again. I mean, not the sort of increase we saw with the arrival of B45 around about the end of last year and turn of this year. But we have seen over 11 million documented cases Uh, Probably 80 or 90% of the population now have had COVID. And we've seen 20,000 deaths and there's been a lot of data uh, about the death rate uh, over the last week or two. Uh, These are the weekly cases. Um, The hospital and ICU cases uh, in um, in the yellow bars. And you can see that Over the period of uh, late March to middle of April, we're starting to see an increase again in our average seven-day hospitalisations, and that's a a worrying sign as we approach uh, the winter period and we start to see uh, the arrival of the other aspects of the twindemic uh, influenza and and RSV. Uh, The actual case numbers are running at around about uh, um, 1,000 or more uh, each week, and the death rates are um, pretty static. And so this is the overall death rate um, over the last four years as an age-standardised death rate by month of occurrence. Uh, and what we heard recently was that uh, we'd seen uh, about 15,000 excess deaths in 2022 in Australia, and that over 10,000 of those uh, died due to infection with SARS-CoV-2 and another 3,000 died of of something else but had CoV-2 at the time. And so although we opened up the the country, we opened up the states, 
uh, we opened up the schools, the restaurants and, uh, and the shops, uh, what we did was in fact uh, produce a significant increase in the mortality. And at one stage, a couple of months ago, Australia had the second highest death rate per capita due to COVID in the world. Uh, and so this is not uh, a process where we're saying um, COVID doesn't matter, COVID's gone. Uh, the reality is that COVID is having a major impact, particularly on older persons in Australia. And so the message that we had and that we shared with the public uh, was that we can't go on locking people up, forcing them to wear masks, uh, banning them from playgrounds, fishing and golf. Uh, we need to start treating this as, as any other uh, winter virus. And we're going to concentrate on protecting the vulnerable, making sure that we don't have a lot of people in our hospitals, uh, making sure that we don't have a lot of people passing away. Uh, and when you look at how well we've done that, the answer is not particularly well. Um, last week, there were 1,500 COVID cases in residential aged care, uh, an increase um, over the previous month of 65%, and we're not in winter yet. 234 homes were affected by outbreaks, and I'll show you a bit of a trend line in that. Um, and there were 20 resident deaths that were recorded. Um, there are no public restrictions. It's no longer necessary to be fully vaccinated against SARS-CoV-2 to enter an aged care institution, and we don't force um, updates in vaccination in aged care staff. So we are looking at a serious situation that continues with SARS-CoV-2 in our aged care homes and the triple-demic of influenza, COVID-19 and RSV, which we're going to see this winter, um, you know, bodes ill for those people living in uh, tertiary care institutions. Um, vaccination, despite uh, a fair degree of hesitancy at the moment, remains the best form of protection for those people uh, against SARS-CoV-2. This is the outbreaks over the last uh, year and a half, and you can see that uh, uh, the original arrival of Delta and then of Omicron led to massive outbreaks. Uh, 1,250 aged care homes with outbreaks at a peak uh, back in February of uh, 22. And while it dropped down um, after the uh, cessation of B45 clusters, uh, it's starting to go back up again uh, as we see new variant strains uh, uh, begin to circulate in Australia. And that's a worry for, uh, uh, for our loved elderly. Uh, I want to look at the New South Wales data just for a second because I think it has a bit more detail than some of the, the national data. Uh, New South Wales saw a slight decrease, only 1%, uh, with almost uh, 10,000 people diagnosed in the last reported week with COVID. What we saw after uh, issues with XB4, XB5 was that uh, XBB and its sublineages are now the dominant variant group, and that includes XB 1.5, 0 0.1, 0 0.16, and 0.1.9. Emergency presentations requiring admissions have increased, and there were 28 reported deaths, as well as an increase in influenza um, over the week in New South Wales. And you can see a couple of the graphs here. Uh, you can see that uh, there are trend lines that are starting to move up through February, March, both at the top for uh, 
hospital admissions. And in the second one, uh, although a slight decrease in the last week, uh, an increase in those people with ICU, uh, almost invariably to be followed by an increased uh, uh, mortality uh, in a week or two related to those, uh, those data. Uh, and, and this is the reason for that, and I mean it's a bit of a, a complicated graph, but you can see that when we had um, large numbers of weekly cases, about 40,000 towards the end of December, uh, most of what was happening in New South Wales was that B4, uh, BA4, BA5, uh, pink and dark pink part of the graph there. And over the period from through January, February, and now the kick-up starting towards April, we're seeing a change. So now it's XBB um, variants that are dominating the picture there. And as we change the predominant Omicron subvariants, uh, we see a change in uh, the protection that people have from uh, previous disease or previous vaccine, and we see a change in the infectiousness and a change in the case numbers. So. Uh, we are really in New South Wales now in the uh, XBB phase of what's happening with Omicron soup uh, in the community. Uh, the X in this classification means that this is actually a recombinant of other sublineages. And in this case, it's BA.2.10.1 and BA.2.75. These XB.1.5 are slightly less immune evasive so that they're not um, going to hide from your antibodies more than XBB.1, but they are somewhat more infectious as they've got a single uh, mutation that increases their binding to the ACE2 receptor, uh, cell receptor, so that they can actually enter the cell easier. Um, there is no evidence of decreased severity, but there are decreased neutralisation tetus with previous vaccine or infection and it suggests that while our original vaccines and infection with the previous Omicron variants uh, aren't very protective against XBB.1.5, it appears that bivalent vaccine restores the response and that's an important point when we talk about uh, boosting. Uh, overall the commentary in the BMJ was that this is just another of the ongoing variants that we have and it's going to come and go as time passes and it'll be replaced with something else that's going to be uh, uh, likely a sub-variant of the Omicron soup. So let's talk about vaccines and how well they're doing. Uh, this was what they did to the Christ the Redeemer statue in, uh, uh, in Rio. They put out a false Easter message saying vaccine saves. Uh, and although I've got a lapel badge that says vaccine save lives, uh, the answer is false. Vaccination saves lives, not vaccine. And so the vaccine hesitancy that we're seeing with boosting doses in Australia means that it doesn't matter how much we change the vaccine or how good we make it, it only works when it's in people's arms. And that's an important thing to stress to patients when you see them uh, in your clinics. The other thing that's important is the duration of protection and while we get a vaccine and we get a good shield, over time that vaccine starts to wane in its effectiveness, particularly with the ongoing variation in the, the circulating predominant strains. And so what do we need 
to know about bivalent boosters versus the monovalence. The first thing is things change continuously. Um, whether or not the vaccines are effective depends on um, the previous vaccines you've had, whether you've had previous infection and with which strain, and what the circulating subvariants are at the moment. But there's two important and different levels of protection. Firstly, neutralising antibodies um, from vaccine or disease, and they'll protect you against disease and also decrease the amount of transmission we see in the community. So they're important, but sadly they don't last long periods of time as the virus escapes. The second part is the T-cell response, and that's going to protect you after a few days against serious disease. And our ability to monitor this requires continuous real-world evidence as the subvariants change uh, and we use different vaccines and try and work out what's a good idea and, and what's most effective. Uh, I've put up there the website for the New South Wales Health Agency for Clinical Innovation. I've done that because they have a really great section on the critical intelligence for COVID-19. And, and what they have there is a list of all of the variants of concern from WHO and a table on their epidemiology, how transmissible they are, um, how they affect your immune response, how they respond to various treatments and so on. So I would recommend uh, people have a look at that occasionally to keep up with what's going on with uh, uh, changes to COVID-19 infections. This is the first of the um, two studies that I want to talk about, about bivalent versus univalent, monovalent. Uh, this is the study uh, in North Carolina that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine this year. Uh, you can see that the blue line is the use of a monovalent vaccine at point zero. And you can see that after a couple of weeks, you start to get a booster in the vaccine effectiveness up to almost 60% or just above, and then it starts to decline, and it's pretty well ineffective uh, against those strains during the study period by nine and a half weeks. A bivalent vaccine produced a response earlier, uh, had a higher peak of about 70%, and was still running at some degree of protection after three and a half months. So what this said was bivalent vaccines at that time in North Carolina were more protective and lasted longer in a protective vaccine effectiveness than monovalent vaccines. And this is a messy table and it's broken down into um, the people who were hospitalised um, and looks at different uh, boosting with monovalent and bivalent. Uh, and I think the important columns are the two, are the third and sixth column that's the difference in different age groups in those with or without previous infections and the type of booster and how many doses and so on. And what you can see there is that on average, the absolute difference in effectiveness, not the relative effectiveness, the absolute difference was about 30 to 35%. So bivalent boosters in the new, in the North Carolina study were 30% more effective than using a monovalent booster. Uh, this is the circulating strains in North Carolina at the time. And you can see that they were predominantly in the blue and green section, which is BA5 and BA4. So we know from these data that using 
uh, a bivalent vaccine at a time that BA4, BA5 were circulating uh, was very effective in protecting people for at least uh, three months or so. The second study I want to have a look at is uh, the study that was done on uh, the use of the bivalent BA4-5 by uh, one of the two companies that makes one, and that's the, uh, the Moderna version of this. Um, they looked at comparing their mRNA uni monovalent vaccine uh, against their uh, bivalent vaccine, 1273 versus 1273.222. Uh, and here again, you can see that uh, uh, on the right-hand side with a bivalent and on the left-hand side with a, their monovalent, and you can see that the, the ratio uh, was about six times more geometric mean teters with the bivalent than with the monovalent. And so again, uh, a second study in their summary was that uh, using a bivalent was similar in, in local and adverse reactions, so similar safety. Um, the pre-specified immunogenetic objectives uh, showed a superior response to the bivalent and a non-inferior response against ancestral uh, virus. And so worked the same against original Wuhan and other strains, uh, but was much more effective against current BA4, BA5. So the antibody responses were consistent right across the board. So older people, younger people all showed benefit. And it also, towards the end of the study, showed cross-neutralisation against both Omicron BQ1.1 and XBB uh, from there. Uh, here's a list that will be available in the, uh, um, the, the webcast handbook about other studies that have been done looking at real-world evidence. Um, and this is some uh, overview data published by CDC, which is essentially saying that people who had a bivalent booster uh, were 16 times um, less likely to be uh, um, hospitalised than those unvaccinated and two and a half times less likely to be hospitalised than people without an updated booster. So lots and lots of data uh, particularly from the United States, saying that uh, we have benefit uh, in providing people with the latest vaccine, which is the bivalent B45 vaccine, and which is available in Australia. So who should we boost? The risk-benefit equation is clear. Uh, vaccination decreases disease and decreases severe disease. The time frame varies. The disease consequences are worse for older persons than those with chronic diseases. And apart from the issues of pericarditis, myocarditis, in, largely in males 12 to 19, the risk of significant consequences of COVID-19 vaccine is low. Also, the risk of long-term sequelae post-infections are definitely non-zero. There is minimal appetite in the community or in, in governments for non-pharmaceutical interventions and their use is minimal. Very few people wear masks uh, and so on. So what happens if you get recurrent infection? We know that long COVID, uh, post-acute sequelae of SARS, if you want to use that terminology, um, has varying studies. Now some people say it hits, uh, you know, 
one in five people, which is the CDC data, some people say 10%, other people say it's nowhere near as high as that. Um, I think it varies with the age groups uh, that you're talking about. But um, according to CDC, the lost productivity, lost well-being, the health expenses over there run at the moment to 2.6 US trillion dollars. The long haulers, as CDC calls them, are more likely to be female, uh, more likely to have chronic conditions, uh, usually have multiple early symptoms as a sign, usually have a higher early viral load. Um, and despite the fact that we have some understanding of um, what the background is and who's more likely to get it, we still have poor understanding of, of uh, the complexity of uh, cases and also of the uh, pathogenesis. Um, the multi-system inflammatory disease of children that we were very worried about with Delta was causing about one in three children to be, uh, sorry, one in 3,000 children with COVID to be hospitalised, appears to be occurring less with Omicron than it did with Delta, as long COVID appears to be occurring less with Delta as it did with, uh, um, sorry, with Omicron as it did with Delta. The other thing that's becoming clear is that vaccination reduces the risk of long COVID. So what are the consequences of recurrent infections? And that's what we're talking about now mainly because most of Australia's had the disease and we're trying to stop them getting it again. Um, a Veterans Affairs study, and we've got to take into account that these are a group of older people in, uh, in the US. Um, the people who had recurrent infections were twice as likely um, to get to die, three times as likely to be hospitalised, uh, twice as likely to get long COVID and chronic fatigue, uh, three times likely to get heart issues and blood clotting disorders, and that was independent of, of vaccination. So recurrent infection is not uh, a, non, a, you know, a non-zero problem. Uh, people get chronic um, concerns that come out of the fact that they're getting COVID for a second or third time as we're seeing. So who should be boosted? It depends on where you are. The World Health Organization says countries should give given the second booster to older people, pregnant women, health workers, people with weaker immune system, and those at higher risk of severe disease. And they're part of our recommendation groups. They're saying that waning vaccine and infection immunity, relaxation of public health measures, Emergence of new variants all lead to COVID-19 surges and we see that happening on a, on a regular basis. And they're saying that additional protection will occur particularly in vulnerable populations at least for several months by administration of a second booster dose. They're saying please offer it four to six months later. In America they're much more aggressive with their vaccination schedules and boosters. This is a complicated slide because it varies with what vaccine you had to begin with. But essentially they are saying um, people should get a, um, a second booster four to eight weeks after their primary booster uh, and that they're saying that for everybody from six months of years upwards uh, independent of um, whether they're severely compromised or not. So in America uh, much more of an emphasis on giving vaccines, particularly to children, much more of an emphasis on saying, as we have new vaccines, please go out and get yourself boosted. Uh, 
This is the current Otagi Booster advice that says everybody over 65 should get it. People 18 to 64 are recommended to get it if they've got a chronic condition or a susceptibility and it should be considered for healthy people from 18 to 65 and 5 to 17 year olds with a chronic condition. They're also saying that uh, um, bivalent vaccines are preferred to any of the others, but any vaccine will still provide you with protection. And they're also saying wait six months since your last infection or your last booster dose. So overall, a number of non-vaccine interventions are available, particularly mask use and improved ventilation. Very little of that is taking place, although Victoria has done a lot to improve ventilation in school settings and other places. In absence of anybody using these non-pharmaceutical interventions to any great degree, vaccination is the most critical aspect of protecting yourself. And population recommendations are not personal recommendations. So should we use non-mRNA vaccines? Um, and this is a question I've been asked and the answer is from my perspective, uh, no. Uh, the uh, preprint paper recently compared the original vaccines and said that the mRNA vaccines were better. I've seen nothing to compare Novavax to newer bivalent vaccines and I only use it uh, if people do not want to use an mRNA vaccine. Antivirals, okay. You are now eligible for an antiviral if you are 70 or over, which was always there, now 60 and over if you've got an additional risk factor, 50 and over if you've had two additional risk factors, 30 and over if you're First Nations with one factor, and anybody previously hospitalised with COVID is also entitled to an antiviral. Um, Paxlovid is nowhere near used as much as it should be in Australia. Um, the reason being that uh, uh, it has a lot of interactions uh, with uh, other medication that people take. Uh, this is an absolutely magic website. Look up COVID-19 drug interactions, University of Liverpool, plug in the antiviral, plug in the medication they're on, and I'll tell you whether you need to change doses or reduce or do anything else. Uh, the other ones available in Australia are Molnupiravir or Legevrio. There's been some doubts about its effectiveness after the Panorama trial in the UK. It certainly appears to not be as effective as Paxlovid in preventing hospitalisation, uh, but it is still useful for those who are at risk where Paxlovid is unsafe and does decrease the duration of infection. It's the most prescribed uh, antiviral in, in, in Australia. Uh, let's talk flu. Uh, you've heard a lot about the fact that uh, influenza um, is surging in Australia. Um, it's only because people are comparing influenza in Australia to um, two years ago when everybody was locked up and we actually didn't have any influenza. The tracking, which is the dark red line, and ignore the April data because it's only part way through, appears to be running similar to 2019, which was the very first, very worst flu year we ever had uh, from the point of total cases, well over 300,000. Uh, it doesn't appear to be screaming up as quickly as last year when we had a very early, uh, very intense flu season that only lasted a couple of months and was pretty well finished by July. Um, 
I'm not clairvoyant. I think we'll have a moderate to severe flu season. That'll be protracted and it won't be peaking early necessarily. But I'm worried about the fact that when I look overseas and when I look at our early data, um, flu AH3N2 is predominant and that's the one that causes most deaths and most severe disease in the elderly. There are two articles coming out this month um, in Medicine Today and Respiratory Medicine Today. Uh, they have important updates about uh, the upcoming flu season for the general population and for older persons. Uh, and I would recommend that people have a read of those uh, when they come out in the next week or so. There is no change to the funded groups. Uh, the key points for older persons are standard influenza vaccines do not work very well. Uh, we know that both adjuvanted and high-dose vaccines work better. Uh, we have good data that when we used the adjuvanted vaccine in uh, 2019 that hospitalisations decreased substantially, although cases didn't. Um, we will still see Omicron circulating. The only funded vaccine in the elderly is the adjuvanted vaccine. Please use that for everybody over. Um, general practice staff are critical to making sure those people who are currently um, a bit vaccine hesitant because of everything that's going on, that they actually go out and make sure that they recruit their people in and get them protected, both with a booster against COVID, but also um, against flu. Uh, this is a list of those that are available and the years they're available. High doses available on the private market from 60 to 65. Adjuvanted is free from 65 up. Uh, be careful with Alfluria quad, you can't use it in children under five years. So uh, I want to finish with these questions. Who should we vaccinate? What about the boosting? What about other vaccines and which groups are we failing? And the answer is while we were worried about waning vaccine uh, uh, effectiveness over time and telling people to wait until May or later to get their vaccine, our influenza season has gone back to starting a bit earlier last year. Get out and get everybody vaccinated now. Give them their COVID-19 vaccine booster at the same time. Uh, it's hard to get into some general practices. Don't try and get them to come back twice. Give them at the same time. Give them all their other vaccines that they need. The only restriction, and it's a theoretical restriction, is that adjuvanted uh, flu vaccine in the elderly is a second adjuvanted vaccine with the Shingrix that is recommended uh, for older persons by uh, ATAGI and because they're both adjuvanted that we don't want to give two adjuvants at the same time so please split them up. But pneumococcal vaccine, uh, COVID vaccine, pertussis boosting, flu can all be given at the same time. Uh, which groups are we failing? Uh, we have unacceptable vaccination coverage in children, in pregnant women, in those with chronic diseases and in our aged care institutions, in our healthcare workers. Please focus on them this year and please make sure that we get as much protection against respiratory viruses as we possibly can. Thank you. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcasts where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best 
possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.